Well, uh, good morning. Um, I'm Leonard Allen, and uh, this is uh, Lauren White. Um, uh, we're both from uh, Lipscomb University and College of Bible. And um, it's a privilege for me to partner with Lauren in, in these two days, these two presentations. Um, we're going to kind of go back and forth both days. Um, with our presentation, you want to say any word of greeting or? I, I'm just uh, lucky to be sort of tagged on to Leonard. I've told him that you know most people are going to be they're going to know your name. They're going to be here to see you. So I just get the credibility that comes along with <laughs> knowledge. So um, I also feel lucky to be here, blessed to be here. It's good to be with you. Yeah. Thanks. <clears throat> I didn't see in the program any little description of what we're doing here. I just, there's just this kind of hopefully slightly intriguing title. Um, and so let me say a word about what we're going to be doing today and tomorrow. Uh, our title, as you know, is Truthy or Truthful, Scripture, uh, the Authority of Scripture in a Cross-Pressured Time. Um, <clears throat> Today, um, we're going to look at where we find ourselves, the, the context, our cultural context, and the pressures it's putting on Christians in various ways. And then tomorrow, we will um, develop a, a, our case for what we're calling a classic view of the doctrine of Scripture. So. Um, our description said modern critical studies of the Bible tended to fragment its unity and question its account of history, its accuracy. Postmodern approaches to the Bible tend to deny the text any stable meaning and depend on the reader to create it. We're going to touch on those, those two modern approaches to the Bible today and then over against that, tomorrow, we're going to present our case for a view of scripture that's older than both of those, and I think more adequate for today. <clears throat> so our aim in these two presentations, as I said, is to lay out a classic view of Christian scripture. By classic, uh, we mean a doctrine of scripture that is not simply modern or uh, that is to say, not simply post 17th century with the rise of modern biblical studies. <clears throat> but a view that would make sense, we would hope, to the whole Christian tradition and not just to moderns. We mean a view of scripture in which modern assumptions about it do not dominate and where we make room we retrieve what we could call pre-modern convictions and practices about Scripture's nature, authority, and interpretation. <clears throat> and we think there's a vital need for such a retrieval at this time. Um, a time when, as the philosopher Charles Taylor put it uh, a few years ago, there's been, his phrase, a titanic change in our Western civilization. Uh, 
the, the titanic new thing he's talking about here is, in, again, in his phrase, the presumption of that the presumption of unbelief has become predominant. Not everywhere, but especially predominant, he would say, in powerful Western subcultures like the academy and the universities, which have, a, of course, a powerful influence on the culture at large. So today, uh, in our first uh, presentation, we want to describe in broad strokes where we find ourselves now. What's influencing us? We want to look particularly at what modern and now what we could call postmodern approaches to the Bible have given us. And why what they have given us, we believe, is insufficient to establish Christian doctrine and to ground the Christian faith. <clears throat> So we'll, we'll launch into sort of where we find ourselves in regard to the Bible and its authority. Uh, one of the hallmarks of the contemporary academic world is what um, we can call the hermeneutics of suspicion. It is probably the chief strategy of postmodern thought. Uh, in its most straightforward form, it says, that no text has any right to speak with final authority because all texts are deceptive. All texts have hidden agendas that probably have oppressive tendencies for somebody. For this reason, uh, what we can call skeptical inquiry has become a basic tool and reflex, especially in the modern academy. Uh, I think it reigns uh, in the academic circles. And, and beyond the academy, this spirit, this sort of skeptical critique, spirit of skeptical critique, blows through our culture and frankly is affecting pretty much all of us. Um, our, our individualistic consumerist society presses Christian people to privatize their beliefs and their practices rather than try to impose them on their neighbors. And in such a world, we all feel what, again, Charles Taylor has identified as cross pressures. We use that phrase in our class uh, title. Uh, cross pressures in our social setting. <clears throat> he says the, the simultaneous <clears throat> pressure of various spiritual options. This is what he means by cross pressures. The simultaneous pressures of various spiritual options, the, or, or the feeling, he says, of being caught between an echo of transcendence and the drive toward, again, his word, imminentization. It's, it's hard to say. Imminentization. And, and let me define what he means by that word. It, it, it's, the, it's the imminent versus the transcendent. He says, he, he says this means the process whereby meaning, significance, and fullness are sought within an enclosed, self-sufficient, and naturalistic world without any reference to transcendence, that is to a transcendent spiritual realm. 
The result is highly individualistic and highly experience-oriented uh, articulations of what feels authentic to myself. The, he calls it the age of authenticity. Nothing is true for me unless it feels authentic to me. <clears throat> I, I, I remembered that some years ago, I guess it's closer to 30 years ago now, uh, John Paul II, Pope John Paul II, had a, a, a wonderful uh, encyclical that he released, I think 1993, uh, entitled um, The Splendor of Truth. It's, it's really a wonderful uh, document. And uh, <clears throat> he captured this current spirit of the age uh, in this work. Um, with, with transcendence diminished, he wrote, I'm quoting, the individual conscience is afforded the status of a supreme tribunal of moral judgment which hands down categories and infallible decisions about good and evil. He said the result is that the inescapable claims of truth disappear, yielding their place to a criterion of sincerity, authenticity, and being at peace with oneself, the, the new criterion of what is true and good and right. The result, he goes on to say, is a constant undermining of firm, settled, and fulsome beliefs. This is what Taylor's talking about with the cross pressures. Uh, fulsome beliefs resulting in a constant invention, and this is Taylor, not, not John Paul II, the constant invention of what he calls middle ways between orthodoxy, traditional Christian faith, and the more bleak and austere forms of secularism at the other extreme that are really kind of unbearable to face. So you invent this middle pathway. You're, you're kind of your own spiritual path that might bring elements of the old traditional view in, uh, also accommodating to your sense of, of, of this um, uh, imminent present uh, and to kind of create your own kind of personalized religion. And uh, we see it all around us. You, you know these things. I mean, uh, Christian Smith famously called the, probably the most popular of these middle ways uh, moralistic therapeutic deism, uh, MTD for short. And we see it more and more in our students at Lipscomb when they come. Um, also, uh, Lauren's going to address the reality of what is called folk religion, uh, which would be another kind of middle way that people craft for themselves. <clears throat> so it's, um, it's a little surprise then that sociologists of religion have suggested that contemporary North American Christianity is in danger of devolving into a folk religion. And with that, I'm going to let Lauren explain what a folk religion is and how it might relate to our topic here. So a theologian named Roger Olson has helpfully described folk religion. And he's doing so, of course, with an eye towards its significance for Christianity in particular. But he says this can happen in any religious kind of expression or circle. OK, so there are several tendencies three of which I'm going to draw out that I think is a kind of way of summarizing what he's seeing. One, he says, 
In folk religion, when believers have faith experiences uh, that we might call revelatory, it's where they believe they've learned something about who God is or what God's will is, um, they don't tend to do any kind of intellectual reflection upon that experience. Rather, there's a kind of resistance to that. There's a resistance to critical reflection and to formal confession of belief. Instead, they kind of tend to favor subjective experiences, pragmatic methods of problem solving, kind of putting out fires or addressing something and doing what works, right? Um, you know, one example he gives that I think makes sense, this is sort of evidenced in the fact that most of us, um, when we, you know, we, we're really familiar with this in our churches, there's a kind of um, tendency to cling to what we might call feel-good cliches and slogans often put to music, which take the place of coherent and developed doctrinal affirmations. Okay, second, um, in folk religion, believers tend not to integrate their faith experiences with other spheres of life. Their faith flourishes only in compartmentalized or privatized spheres, such as small cell groups of people with similar experiences. And, and these groups, people within these groups network with each other as long as they find support and kind of commonality. But there's not much leaving those groups, right? Okay, number three. Um, the above trends seem to issue from the fact that in folk religions, feelings take precedence over intellect. What feels good and provides comfort is often the main criterion by which grassroots Christians decide what to believe and how to practice their spirituality. So I think this, this phenomenon kind of gets at what we were thinking of as being truthy versus truthful in our class title. Uh, full Christianity traffics in what we might call a kind of do-it-yourself orthodoxy. Uh, another reflex that's well-suited for our age of authenticity, right? Um, indeed, you know, many of us see little reason not to church shop, don't we? Like, if we have the options. We church shop until we find a congregation that closely suits our personal tastes and proclivities. Uh, we think we may find ourselves reading scripture in much the same way, shopping around the text for the version we find most palatable, um, Leonard and I have talked about how we could maybe see how this is where we find people saying things like, I follow Jesus, not Paul. So I'm going to read the Gospels. I, I'm tired of listening to Paul. And it's an interesting perspective. Of course, there's some sense in which that's true, that we follow Jesus and not Paul. But, you know, if you, when you listen carefully, uh, it seems like that can also be code for something like, uh, I'd like my own personal Jesus rather than a, a different telling of who Jesus is. Or I prefer, I enjoy the gospel narratives more than the kind of harder work of the doctrinal and, and moral reflections upon their significance, right? Okay, so in sum, there is this kind of orienting driver here behind these behaviors, and it's this preference for what feels truthy rather than what is truthful. Now, there are profound missional problems you could probably guess at them, but first of all, folk religions have little or no public impact. They only make sense to the people who already buy it, right? They're already the insiders in the group. Um, they don't function like uh, the communal bearer of a tradition that's upholding and guarding a deposit of truth. 
They function more like support groups. Second, uh, another missional problem is that folk religions thrive on feelings, and feelings are notoriously difficult to parse out and make sense of. So uh, folk Christianity tends over time, this is Roger Olson's idea, they tend over time to lose their shape and become compatible with almost anything and everything. <coughs> now, what's interesting here is I think some people who embrace folk Christianity, this kind of resistance to doing the intellectual stuff, um, they probably do so for an understandable reason in a lot of respects. Um, they may be convinced that much of what is wrong with Christianity has arisen through formal theological reflection and, interestingly, they're not far off from the truth. We're going to trace that truth through uh, this lecture today. Uh, thanks to the inroads of secularizing philosophies, doctrines of scripture's authority and inspiration have tended to be distorted. And they've been distorted in two directions that we're going to follow, the modernist and the fundamentalist. Leonard's about to talk to you about that. And then I'll talk to, talk to you a little bit about the postmodern as a kind of late, the, the late expression and kind of result of that, right? Um, but I'll close now for saying that we're convinced that folk religion is a poor substitute for historic, theologically rooted Christian faith. And we're convinced that formal <coughs> academic head knowledge is an equally poor substitute for personal transformation through a relationship with the triune God. And that's why we think the better way is to, to look back and forward, so to speak, to seek to set forth what we could call a classic doctrine of scripture. One that's not simply modern, but encompasses, and interestingly, I think most interestingly, is makes sense to all Christians in the whole of the tradition, reaching back all the way to the beginning. Okay, so I'll hand over to Leonard now. He's going he's gonna to talk to us about um, the modernist move. Thanks, Lauren. And let me say that it's, uh, uh, Lauren's been part of our faculty at Lipscomb for, is it four or five? Five years now, and it's just been a pleasure and a joy to work with her, with our students. And uh, our, uh, I'll put in a little plug here. Our, our undergraduate majors are climbing and growing, and the spirit among them is wonderful and exciting, and uh, we're, we're pleased to work together in that context. Okay, so how did we get here uh, in what we're trying to describe? Um, let me say first of all that um, I'm going to talk briefly about modernist readings of the Bible, and then about what we could call fundamentalist readings of the Bible. And our view is that these two, those seemingly polar opposites, are in a, in a certain sense two sides of the same coin. And that's what, one thing I want you to grab, to, at least you may not agree, but to understand what we're trying to claim here. <clears throat> Modern Western culture created a strong dualism between the natural and the supernatural the divine and the human, making it difficult in modern times to hold those two in tension together. The natural, 
became the dominant force. The scientific revolution, scientific method, all of, all of the things that went with that. Via the Enlightenment, this period we call the Enlightenment in the 18th century and earlier, um, what, uh, what we could call detached objectivity became the interpretive goal and the gold standard of reading the Bible. A detached, almost scientific objectivity. <clears throat> Modernist liberals and fundamentalists both tended to reject the text's spiritual sense in search of oh, primarily and maybe only the literal sense, the grammatical sense. Of course, part of the great Christian tradition before modern times was uh, the importance of both the literal and the spiritual sense of scripture. That tended to recede, if not be lost, in this modern period. The tradition was emptied of significance for determining the text's meaning. Tradition was, was of no use. In fact, it was an impediment. And so um, individualistic interpretations uh, abounded. So much what we could call critical biblical scholarship came to be grounded on this naturalistic assumption. Call it, one scholar calls it a naturalist ontological assumption. Uh, a kind of deep naturalism uh, here. It tended thereby to embrace the deep-seated modern convention, here I'm using uh, the words of John Webster, the deep-seated modern convention that all texts are simply natural historical entities and that the Bible is to be read like any other text because all texts are fundamentally the same kind of thing. Okay, and most of us, including myself, I think were sort of trained in that years ago. Read the Bible like you would any other text. <clears throat> uh, okay, that, that became a dominant uh, interpretive view of the Bible. So wh what were the outcomes of this? There's a, a, a very sophisticated and intriguing historical work on this by a um, biblical scholar named Michael Legospi. <clears throat> And the title of his book is very telling. It's a, it's a study of the history of biblical hermeneutics uh, beginning in about the 17th century. And the title of it is The Death of Scripture and the Rise of Biblical Studies. Uh, that title says uh, a lot. So that many people today are not really reading scripture when they approach the Bible, they're reading the Bible. A different, with a set of different assumptions about what kind of book this is. <clears throat> from, from, from liberal quarters, scripture's full truthfulness and trustworthiness came into constant question. For scholars in these sectors who wanted to remain Christian, and, and a lot did, the Bible came to be viewed as a collection of texts whose point lay not so much directly in the texts themselves, but in the history, rather vague history, that lay out of sight behind it. 
Um, one of Hans Frey's main points back in 1974 in his important book, The Eclipse of Biblical Narrative, one of his main points was that biblical scholars in the modern period, both liberals and conservatives, I would say, tended to work out of this shift. Biblical study became primarily critical historical study. As a result, the, the modern guild or academy has tended to be preoccupied with, with reconstructing the historical circumstances and the literary conventions of antiquity that you might find clues to in the text. And, and that's a useful undertaking. Don't get me wrong to say there's no point in ever doing that. But scripture's primary focus is something different. Scripture's primary focus is forming disciples and transforming us into the image of God's Son. Which biblical criticism, I will say bluntly, has often ignored or even subverted. Again, it was Hans Frey nearly 50 years ago who said that, the, uh, that this shift, uh, quote his words, has meant attention to almost anything about the Bible except its authoritative claim upon the reader. A prime example, I'll give one example here. Um, a prime example was the creation in this period of what has come to be called the Jesus of history. You've heard that phrase, right? The Jesus of history, the, the real Jesus behind the text in the Gospels. Uh, uh, you have the Jesus of the Gospel, you have the Christ of the Gospels, and you have the, G the real Jesus of history. And we've had three quests for the historical Jesus in the 20th century and 21st century. Um, attempting to uh, make Jesus basically a historian's construct something different from the Christ of the Gospels. In these reconstruction efforts, historians, and I would say again, both liberals and conservatives, historians quarreled about whose version of, of the Jesus story was more accurate. Conservative scholars insisted, insisted that theirs was the most accurate. Liberal scholars were confident that their more minimalist story was the, the true story of Jesus. And so the extremes of this would have been the Jesus seminar in the last few decades where they took votes and found only 18% of Jesus' sayings were, were, were true and <coughs> accurate. 18%. <clears throat> so um, that's been a dominant preoccupation in the modernist or higher critical uh, approaches to scripture, to the Bible. Karl Barth, uh, to his great credit, in the early 20th century, began reacting against this modernist shift in how to read the Bible. And he argued at great length in his magnum opus that God's word was not encrypted within scripture, like some code to be discovered through historical excavation, and it did not need to be uh, recovered from the historical events behind it. Bart says God's word is found wholly and fully in the text itself. Um, now, that's the modernist approach, which has been certainly in um, higher education circles has been utterly dominant for now for 
a century and more. Uh, and now I'll, I'll turn for a moment to uh, the fundamentalist response to that. Um, in the later 19th century, some of you know some of the history here, in the later 19th century, fundamentalism emerged as a strong reaction against the rising modernist approach to the Bible. Uh, at the late 19th century, following the Civil War, was what's called the progressive era in American history. Uh, it was a time of sweeping intellectual and social changes in America. The Industrial Revolution was part of that. And it brought a rising challenge to the reigning Christian orthodoxy. That is, the way Christians over many centuries had viewed the Bible and the, the basics of Christian faith. Um, and, and so um, Christian leaders became um, alarmed by this. Um, a loose federation of alarmed Christian leaders emerged in the closing decades of the 19th century, seeking to resist efforts by these modernist scholars to bring the Christian faith into line with the new progressive thought. Um, and so it was in that context that a new kind, what I would call a new kind of conservative Christianity was created. And it came to be called fundamentalism. Um, and this, this name was given after a, a, a series of small volumes were published between 1910 and 1915 that was called simply The Fundamentals of the Faith. Thus, fundamentalism. Fundamentalism has gotten you know, a mostly bad rap after this, but it was very understandable what they were about and why they were doing it. The new fundamentalism wanted to uphold biblical truthfulness and reliability against the erosion of that. But there was an, an irony here I want to point out. The fundamentalist response ironically adopted some of the same assumptions and methods toward the Bible of the modernists. Only now, trying to use those assumptions and methods against the modernist conclusions. Uh, they shared the modernist tendency to divert the focus away from Scripture's narrative, thus what Fry calls the eclipse of biblical narrative, and uh, the transforming purpose of Scripture itself. They wanted to frame Scripture above all as a repository of accurate information. Um, so um, the doctrine of Scripture's inspiration, which is a significant feature of a doctrine of Scripture's authority, the doctrine of inspiration then tended to be distorted, in my view, our view, uh, in two directions. Among liberals, Scripture's inspiration was often diffused into its capacity to enable humans to have experiences of God. That was sort of the liberal take on this. These texts were still, could still function, though they were simply and only human texts. They could still function to awaken one to something good and true about God. The appeal was to universal human capacities rather than the narrow historical particularities of Israel and Jesus Christ. Uh, 
and, it, so, and it's not difficult to see how this approach could, has led, can lead to what we've called a do-it-yourself orthodoxy. <coughs> So a quarter. Yeah. We're back on track. Good. Um, so among liberals, that view of, inspir of inspiration, and among conservatives, Scripture's inspiration was, this may be hard to explain well, uh, was generally isolated from the material teaching of Scripture. And, and, and focused instead on inspiration as a kind of thing in itself, a kind of necessary preface for even taking the Bible seriously at all. That is, to view it as a foundational and unfailing cornerstone upon which God's building was to be erected. And I'll, we'll point out tomorrow, I think, why we, we have some beef with that elevation of that to, I think, a, 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 uh, an outsized perspective. So on both accounts, <clears throat> that is modernist liberal and uh, modernist fundamentalist, the reading of scripture tended to take place implicitly, uh, this, uh, this is a key point for us, implicitly within a deistic framework. You know what I mean by that? Deism was the doctrine that God has retired. God isn't active in the world. Maybe the creator God may have done some things in the past, but God is basically remote and removed from our midst today. And uh, much of this kind of reading of scripture was at least an implicit, I, I think, deistic kind of reading. That is, human capacities, decisions, and actions became the central emphasis the implicit idea was God has done his part a long time ago in revealing the Bible, and now it's up to humans to figure it out and do their part. Uh, and, and this framework is not only, uh, I would say, deistic in its thrust, but also very uh, individualistic. When the church is taken to exist for me, so is its sacred text for me. The Bible reader's focus readily trains itself upon intellectual mastery on the one hand, or historical accuracy on the other, or even or perhaps on emotional fulfillment as well. Uh, that, that is a kind of reading for consumption rather than for transformation into the image of Christ. So, uh, it's Lauren's turn to talk now about this, the, the, the postmodern reading and what that has brought to us. Thank you, Leonard. Okay, so we've, we've hit you with a lot because we're asking you to bear with us a little longer um, because we're following this trend. This trend, okay, so I think the, the really important shift. Um, is the deistic shift, and also where that takes us is this individualist kind of um, implication or kind of thrust, right? So as we follow it into late, or what's called post-modernity, where we live now, uh, we see its you know, marked effects upon the Bible reader. Uh, we, as we've already talked about, we find ourselves living in this age of authenticity, and one that bears the results of modernity's deistic ideals of self-sufficiency, and individualist freedom. 
Nowadays, the individual generally feels some sense of responsibility for, and I think entitlement to, his or her own readings of scripture, with often a kind of wary or careful, maybe even suspicious eye towards tradition. The Bible reader's focus trains itself upon personal fulfillment rather than sanctification as a member of an ancient community. So interestingly, I think for us in thinking about how do we get there? What, what were the kind of dominant influences that got us there? There's this kind of, everyone knows a little bit, you know, at least in academic circles about postmodernism and how it pushed us in these directions. And uh, I think we can see the sort of trickle down effects of postmodernism in society at large as a philosophical movement. So it's worth talking about some of the kind of core tenets of postmodernism and, and its uh, assumptions. Um, what's noteworthy here is that the assumptions that postmodern philosophy brought, in some sense, you know, were kind of helpful correctives to the modern. Um, they ask really important questions to modernity's presumptions about reason being our last and best guide. That's a quote from John Locke. In other words, um, postmodernism has been both a help and a hindrance for scripture readers. So I want to think about three kind of core tenets of postmodern philosophical ideology that have functioned in this kind of helpful yet hindering way. Okay, so number one, this is a quote from the famous philosopher Jacques Derrida. Quote, there is nothing outside the text. You may be familiar with this idea. The idea here is that we do not have any point of access to reality that is not subject to interpretation, okay? Now I'm gonna talk about the, the kind of pluses and minuses of each of these in a moment. So that's, that's precept one. Number two, uh, we can attribute this one to Jean-Francois Lyotard. And the idea, his quote is, uh, incredulity towards meta-narratives. That's just a fancy way of saying, we, we take a skeptical view of grand sweeping stories about the way things are. And the reason we do that is because we no longer presume that we can have some sort of neutral ground or God's eye view, um, some viewpoint from which to make completely objective, moral, or truth-related judgments. Um, the third one we can attribute to Michel Foucault, and it's the idea that power is knowledge. In other words, there are no truth claims that are free of power dynamics. Okay, so let's think about what's helpful here first, and then we'll talk about where this can go off the rails. Um, for starters, uh, modernists and fundamentalists, um, they approached the quest for knowledge with the desire for objective certainty. The idea that um, there's some way we could kind of find content that is true in the sense of being universally self-evident. This is a point where postmodern critique can be useful. Um, we are now much more aware than, than our, the modernists were that um, we never really get to move past interpretation. Interpretation is always part of the deal. We don't ever get to things as they are in themselves. And we're always interpreting. That's just part of it. Second, modernist and fundamentalist readings were rooted in strong traditions that ironically tended to deny the influence of tradition. 
again, here, postmodernism's critiques can be useful because we've become aware these days, most of us are aware of the enculturated character of our commitments. We identify ourselves that way, right? Where we're from and what we were taught and, and that sort of thing. Now we're aware of the fact that we are all subject to some sort of tradition. We're aware that as we pursue knowledge, we bring that traditioning with us, right? Third, modernist and fundamentalist reading strategies were oftentimes quite oblivious to their power dynamics. They were oblivious, I mean, to the kind of social, political, and economic presumptions and arrangements that helped to produce them, that helped to prop them up, keep them going, and that make them appear to be self-evident. That one, I think, is the most dangerous, is when something is just looks like it's just self-evident. But there's these kind of, mm, these power structures that are at play keeping that, that narrative going, right? So in light of this, um, there's something about that hermeneutics of suspicion that we talked about, which is just that kind of skeptical posture that looks for that, that's, that's ready to see that kind of power play that's happening behind the scenes. There's something about that that can be useful, that can be healthy. There's a place for it, you might say. But the problems with all of this, I think, arise when uh, postmodern claims become the starting point, and they become the lens, the, the dominant way that we're reading, and when the reader takes them as her orienting concerns rather than the claims of the historical Christian faith. When this occurs, vis-a-vis -vis the Bible, um, the text itself is kind of emptied of meaning, other than maybe something like the author's intention. That might still be there. But the main focus becomes the kind of social location of the reader, of the interpreter, uh, that becomes the dominant category by which the Bible is interpreted. And the shift, you know, kind of, there's this, this shift in attention away from seeking God's will and submitting to God, and rather we're oriented towards our wishes and needs. Um, sure, you know, traditioning is acknowledged, um, but, you know, the, the way that tradition is approached is with this kind of suspicious view. Um, it is thought to be more savvy, perhaps you might even say more righteous, to disrupt and throw off tradition, rather, especially Christian tradition um, in, in our context, rather than to trust it, which is taken to be naive. Uh, the operative question here is why trust religion? Why trust any of its claims and practices which might impose upon me or have imposed unjustly upon others? So the results of all this are very, very noticeable in the academy. If you go to an academic conference or you look at a call for papers, you'll see it everywhere. Um, as Keith Stanglin put it there's a, in a, a quote here, just like identity politics, we have identity hermeneutics. Modern academia has made a cottage industry of reading and applying the text through this, that, or the other lens usually based on race, gender, and sexual preferences, analogous in some ways to a spiritual sense, end quote. Um, or as I've heard um, Leonard put it, the postmodernist guild thus has its implicit slogan, quote, no creed but the grievances of this or that 
marginalized group. Okay, so that's, that's the academic context. What about the everyday believer? Uh, in our postmodern era, just the, you know, the everyday person that we go to church with on Sundays. I think here, this, this kind of brings us full circle. It brings us back to John Paul II's diagnosis. For most people who only experience a kind of trickle-down effect of these philosophical trends, um, the inescapable claims of truth disappear, yielding their place to a criterion of sincerity, authenticity, and being at peace with oneself. Everyday practitioners are left in a kind of individualist stance, and it's an isolating one in many respects. Um, they're left with folk religion, with these notions that I need no creed but what is authentic to myself, what feels right to me. Thus, we feel at ease saying things like, I want to follow Jesus, I don't like Paul. In the end, as important as some of the postmodernist perspectives are, including, by the way, um, the perspectives that come from the margins, right? The, the readers, the voices of the readers who are reading from the margins, as important as those are, um, they can't be the orientation that guides us. And they, they could, if, if that is the case, that leads us into distorted views of the faith or possibly into kind of shallow folk religion. Uh, they need to be subordinated to the first principle of Christian exegesis, which is the rule of faith. Now that's a, that's a kind of phrasing that may be unusual to you or it may be familiar, but I'm gonna turn it over to Leonard and let him pick up there. We have about, well, actually we don't have a minute left, but I have a, I have a minute here to, to wrap us up and, and participate tomorrow. Uh, in tomorrow's presentation, we will address the key role of, of the rule of faith as part of a classic doctrine of scripture. Uh, the rule of faith was the earliest Christian creed-like thing that says this is what a proper reading of the Bible entails. And it seems to me something like that is essential, has always been essential in the classic posture of scriptural interpretation. For now, today, let me let it suffice to say that um, the ideological and social currents of our time, and increasingly post-Christian time, surely you know that, um, have created an environment where firm and settled beliefs are steadily buffeted and rattled by Charles Taylor's cross pressures, <coughs> making truth seem flimsy and unstable. It's all around us. Surely you feel that. Surely you're, it's happening in your very church. Truth tends to become mostly private and personal. My truth, your truth. <coughs> you can pick and choose from the traditional package of Christian beliefs, guided primarily by what speaks to you. You can make up your own orthodoxy, just you and your Bible, or, or just you and your favorite podcasters. In this context, <coughs> churches of Christ, with their traditional dismissal of tradition, are finding themselves, I think, ill-equipped to withstand these pressures and currents. Tradition is, I'll pick this up tomorrow, tradition is not an iron shackle
to be cast off, as we've tended to presume, but a weighty and living voice offering strong restraints when the winds howl and the swells rise. It is our ally, not our enemy, because it can provide ballast and bearings and wisdom. More of that tomorrow. Tomorrow, we're going to develop what we call a classic doctrine of scripture. We have seven basic points. We'll have a handout like this one uh, outlining that. We want to affirm scripture's full truthfulness and trustworthiness as the whole Christian tradition until recently has done. We want to um, affirm that scripture is living and active, powerful and transforming us because God is working in and through it all the time. And we want to um, affirm we must read it in community for the sake of sanctification and formation. Oh, all that tomorrow. Thank you for listening. Good to have you here.